0: That is our prayer that the Lord would help our unbelief, we who do believe. And He does help. There is mercy and grace to help in time of need. And He helps us by His Word, by the ministry of His Word, blessed by His Spirit. And we turn to that word now Psalm 51. Last week, just to get our bearings a little bit here, last week we spent our Sunday morning with 2 Samuel 12, 2 Samuel chapter 12. And remember what we saw in that chapter, what we saw was Nathan the prophet going to David the king and rebuking him for his sin. And remember, he went to him and he rebuked him in a way that was wise and Thoughtful and even creative, Nathan told David that story about the one man who had wronged another. And what was David's response to that story? Before David knew where this was going, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And at that point, what was Nathan's response to him? Those famous words Nathan said to David, You are the man. Nathan the prophet went to David the king and he let him have it. But it was no more forceful than the moment called for. It was no more forceful than David deserved. And by the blessing of the Spirit of God, it worked. Nathan's goal was to bring David to a place of repentance. And it happened by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David confessed. David repented, and because he did, God forgave him. Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. So David was a forgiven man, we saw that. But then remember, what we also saw was that David was going to be a chastised man. Perfectly compatible with his forgiveness. In other words, the Lord was going to give him to taste some of the bitter fruits of sin in the aftermath of his own sin. Nathan said to David, "Because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die." And even beyond that, Nathan said, "The sword shall never depart from your house because you've done this thing, this thing." And let me say that is a preview of not coming attractions, but coming misery. As we continue to make our way through 2 Samuel. So that was last week. A wise rebuke. And great grace. And even a gracious. Chastisement. That was last week. 2 Samuel 12. This week I don't imagine you're surprised to find. That we're going to do something. That we've already done several times. In this series. This week we're going to look at one of David's psalms. We've done this several times now. We've turned over to the Psalms to see something that David wrote at the time that he was going through the events, the episodes that we've been charting in 2 Samuel, First and 2 Samuel. The reason I say I don't imagine you're surprised to find that we're doing that again today is that out of all of the Psalms that David wrote that are related in the book of Psalms to some identifiable moment in his life, this one is probably the best known. Psalm 51. In the Bible, the heading of this psalm is, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Psalm 51 is the prayer of a broken man. It is the heartfelt cry of a man who has fallen far. And yet what we're also going to see is that it's also the prayer of a man who knows that the Lord mends the broken. Who knows that the Lord raises the fallen. And it's because David knows God like that. That he prays like this. So listen now to Psalm 51. Beginning again with that heading. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. on your altar. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. We've seen it before. We get to see it again today, how the different parts of your word come together to teach us. So we go from 2 Samuel 12 to this psalm we pray that you would give us ears to hear your voice speaking to us now through these ancient words of David. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You've probably witnessed something like this as an observer. You may even have experienced it personally yourself. When somebody is caught ...in some way. When somebody is caught... ...having transgressed... ...in some awful way... ...and... ...it becomes known... ...perhaps it becomes widely known... ...and they're confronted with it... ...and they are at least to some degree... ...humiliated by it. A corporate executive... ...caught in white-collar crime... ...against his own company... A prominent minister caught in sexual sin in the very congregation that he serves. A famous athlete caught in a cheating scandal, maybe betting on his own gains. A powerful politician caught abusing his power in a desperate attempt to cling to power. Sadly, it's not hard to come up with examples. At that point, when that happens, somebody's caught Becomes known, they're confronted with it. There are so many different ways in which that person might respond, especially if their spin team gets involved. And it's not hard to imagine those either, the possible responses. One response is deny, deny, deny. You go on the offensive. Even if it's practically laughable. To deny it because everybody knows you did it. Deny it anyway. You go on the offensive, you go on the attack. Maybe you even attack the motives of the people you say are out to get you. Anymore, that seems to be the tried and true American way. Just deny it. Another response is, and, and this one often goes hand in hand with the first, wait it out. Right? Whether you deny it or not, whether you admit it or not, whether you address it at all, just wait it out. Because we all know how it works. It won't be that long before the news cycle moves on. Even the idea of a 24-hour news cycle seems quaint anymore. You may not need 24 hours. You may just need two or three. Wait it out. Something else will come along. If you're really lucky, lucky in quotes... Someone else will get caught doing something else, and the news crews will hastily relocate from your front sidewalk to theirs. Before the day's done, the world will have moved on, and you will be free once again to walk to your local Starbucks unmolested. Another response is, and this one also now is the American way, the non-apology apology And we all know how this one goes. We can all sing this chorus. I'm sorry if anyone was offended. Please spare me your press conference. Perhaps the sorriest of all sorries. I'm sorry if anyone was offended. Here's one more. Another possible response is, yeah, I did it, but. Yeah, I admit that I did this thing, but. Let me go on at great length about why it's not entirely my fault that I did it and how other people wronged me along the way. And by the way, what they did to me was far worse. And I'm only human. And hey, we're all only human. And let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Because you know it plays in Peoria if you can work Scripture into your press release. So that's quite a catalog. There's denial. There's waiting it out. There's the faux apology And there's the lame, blame-shifting excuse. How rare is it when somebody's caught in something scandalous and they actually, truly, genuinely confess to it and admit just how scandalous it is and the pain that they caused by it and their need to be forgiven, not just understood, Not given time to heal, but forgiven. Forgiven by the very people they've wronged because they're confessing, I have done wrong, I have wronged you. How rare is that? But we can certainly say this, it's when you go into the presence of God and you're not just dealing with public opinion and press conferences... It's when you go into the presence of God that all of that other nonsense just evaporates. It's when you go into the presence of the Almighty who is holy, holy, holy and the only source, the only fount of the mercy you need. That's when all of your denial and your waiting it out and your faux apologies and your lame excuses evaporate in the heat of his goodness and truth. And there's nothing left. Just you and your sin, and God and his holiness and his mercy. That's it. David prayed like that kind of man in that moment. None of that other nonsense, just David and his sin. And God and his holiness and his mercy. And it's all right here, right here in Psalm 51. So let's walk through it. I read it for us. You've heard it. Now what we're going to do is make our way through it. Take another look at what's in here. And then, as we usually do, we'll take a step back and think about some lessons to learn from it. So take a look at it again, beginning with that title. To the Choir Master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So that's the title, that's the heading we're given here. There's no way for us to know exactly what the relationship was between the psalm that we've got here, Psalm 51, and the prayer or prayers that David actually prayed when he was led to repentance. It could be that this psalm is more or less what David actually said in those first private heartbroken moments before God or it could be that this psalm grew out of what David said in those moments but it's more expansive. And it does seem by the time you get to the end of the psalm that David's horizons are broader than you would expect them to have been in those first private heartbroken moments. It does feel like this psalm is more expansive than what David would have said at first, driven to his knees. In any case, bear this in mind, this is a poem. This is a work of art. To be sure, it is a a prayer, but then people don't generally pray in poetry. Poetry. And so it's most likely that this is a composed expression of what was in David's heart and perhaps also in his words when he was led to repentance. And notice this as well. This is a work of art, apparently, that was meant to be sung by the choir. Think about that. It says, To the choir master. This was meant to be sung by the choir, presumably, as an aspect of God's worship. And isn't that powerful? On the one hand, this is an intensely personal, private experience. This is a man who's been broken before God, so that he goes into the very presence of God, and there he cries out for the grace of God, and he finds it. This is personal and private, and yet, on the other hand, it's personal, private experience that bears fruit in this great gift that's given to the whole people to be incorporated into the worship that the people give to God. Out of David's one on one experience with God comes this poem that enriched Israel's worship in his own day, and it has enriched the worship of the church ever since, including this day in this church right here, right now, Fairfax VA 2021. What a gift. This poem. This prayer. So what does David actually pray? Take a look. Take a look first of all at verses 1 and 2. Here is petition. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. That's the opening. That's how he begins. That's the petition. That's the plea for mercy. David knows what God is like. He knows that God is steadfast in his love. He knows that God is abundant in his mercy. And it's because David knows that, that he's got the courage to pray like this. He asks God to forgive him. In all of those different ways, four different ways of putting it. Have mercy, blot out, wash me, cleanse me. In all of those different ways, David asks God to forgive him. So that's verses 1 and 2. Petition. What comes next? Look at verses 3 through 6. 3 down through 6. Here is confession. Confession. and I was thinking we might put it this way. He's confessing it in every direction. He's confessing it up. And by that I mean up to heaven. Because he's saying ultimately God I have sinned against you. So he's confessing it up. He's also confessing it down. And by that I mean deep down. Deep down in his own heart. Because he's saying that sin is a matter of the heart. Why? Because truth and holiness are matters of the heart. So he's confessing it up, he's confessing it down, and then he's also confessing it back. And by that I mean back to the beginning. He's saying, I was formed this way. I came into the world this way. He's not saying, just to be clear, he's not saying that it is sinful the way a human being is conceived. And we can acknowledge that's a mistake that's been made in the history of Christian theology, a profound mistake about the good gift that is human sexuality and the enjoyment of it in marriage. He's simply saying, no, my own sin goes all the way back to my own beginning. Even though David is a renewed man now, he's a believer now, still the sin that he wrestles with as a believer, it can be traced back to the beginning. Confession. He confesses it up. He confesses it down. He confesses it back. What comes next? Well, verses 7 through 12. Again, petition. See how he goes back and forth, seeking the mercy of God. Verses 7 through 12, it's petition again. Look at it, verse 7. He says, purge me with hyssop. Hyssop was a kind of branch that was used now and then in cleansing ceremonies. And David invokes that image here. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. It's more than just forgiveness that David has in mind that he wants from God. He is asking for that, for forgiveness. But now he's also asking for a bunch of other sweet blessings that go along with it. Like joy and gladness and restoration and renewal. And a sense of the fellowship of God. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. David seeks all of that here. And it's no surprise that he does. Forgiveness wonderfully goes hand in hand. With all of these other good gifts. Let me say, by the way, there in verse 11. Where David says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Fair question, what exactly does he mean by that? Take not your Holy Spirit from me. What some folks have said is that when David says that, he's not talking about the fellowship and ministry of the Holy Spirit in his life as a believer. Instead, they say what he's talking about is the extraordinary ministry of the Holy Spirit in his life, equipping him for service as king. Much like the way Saul before him enjoyed that extraordinary endowment as king and then lost it. And so some folks have said, well, that's what David is talking about here. He's asking God that he not lose that particular royal privilege. That interpretation strikes me as unlikely. It's not impossible, and I understand a case can be made for it, but it does seem to me that David's talking here not about extraordinary royal endowment. But about ordinary believing experience. And I say that because everything around it in this section of the psalm. Is about ordinary believing experience. And not only that but for David to say those words. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. That does make sense as an expression of ordinary believing petition. It could be that it's just David's way of saying, Lord, I want to know a fullness of your Spirit's ministry. Please give me more and not less. Clearly, I need more and not less. We can all relate to that. There's nothing distinctly royal about that. It could even be his way of saying, Lord, don't take the Spirit away from me altogether, even though he knows full well that the Lord isn't going to do that. Because that's what prayer is like. Prayer is an offering up of our desires to God. Well, you can totally imagine a believer, especially in a moment of intense feeling and heartbreak, you can totally imagine a believer saying, God, don't leave me now. Even though he knows full well that the Lord will never leave him nor forsake him. There's still something true and right and powerful about pouring out that kind of desire in prayer at the same time that you are holding on to the rock-solid promises of God and you have not let go and you never will. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. In any case, getting back to what we're saying about this whole section, verses 7 through 12, it's, it's a plea again for forgiveness but so much more. Joy and, and renewal and God's fellowship and God's grace. What comes next? Take a look at verses 13 down through 17. We'll call this resolution. Verses 13 down through 17. resolution. So there's David saying, Lord, deal mercifully with me. And that's the kind of man I intend to be. He's not bargaining with God. Not trying to get forgiveness from God by by promising that that's what he'll be and do. But he is resolving. And he is resolving in prayer. Deal mercifully with me. And that's the kind of man I intend to be. A man who praises you. A man who teaches others on the basis of what I've learned. A man whose heart is humbled before you and it shows. Because I know it's the heart that matters most to you. Resolution. And then finally, verses 18 and 19 a prayer for the people. Look at verses 18 and 19. How does he conclude? He says, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So by the end of the psalm, it's clear that David is not only concerned about his own spiritual welfare. He is And he ought to be, he's right to be, but he's also clearly concerned about the welfare of the nation, the kingdom over which he is king. He wants God to be worshipped by the people with the kinds of sacrifices that God has said he's pleased with. Well, then he asks God to bless the people, to fortify them, precisely so that that kind of worship can go on to the praise of God's glory. A prayer for the people. So, brothers and sisters, that's what we've got here in Psalm 51. Now, what can we take from this? What can we learn from this? Two lessons I want to highlight here for us, now that we've made our way through this psalm. The first of them is what we'll call the right response. The right response to conviction of sin. And the second is what we'll call the fruit of forgiveness because it leads to more. The right response and the fruit of forgiveness. Let's take the right response first of all. This gets us back to where we got started. But I want to go back to it now that we've we've heard the psalm and we've studied the psalm. Friends, this is how you respond when you find yourself convicted of sin. This is how you handle it. Whether major or minor or anywhere in between, this is how you respond. Nathan the prophet has brought David the king to a place of repentance, and how does David handle it? He doesn't deny what he did. Remember our catalog before of silly, foolish responses. He doesn't deny what he did. He doesn't hold his breath and wait for God to move on. He doesn't resort to press conference jargon so that he can tell people that he confessed even though he doesn't mean it. And he doesn't say, yeah, I did it, but if Bathsheba hadn't been bathing on the roof, none of this would have happened. None of that. He goes into the presence of the Almighty who is holy and merciful and he owns it. He confesses it. He cries out for grace and he finds it. That's how you handle it. And and notice, this is what set David apart from Saul. It's not that Saul sinned and David did not. That was not the difference between these two men. Instead, the difference is that David repented like this, and Saul never really did. Strange as it may seem, this Psalm, Psalm 51, this is what it looked like in this moment to be a man after God's own heart. David was that. Saul never was. I think about the third of the communicant membership questions that Chris answered today with a resounding I do. Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becometh a follower of Christ? And whenever we study that question, and often when somebody comes before the elders of the church to be examined for communicant membership, one of the points that we make is just this. The life that you'd be promising to live is, yes, a life of obedience, but it's also a life of repentance when you have been disobedient. How hopeless it would be if we'd be promising to live a life in which no allowance is made for disobedience. Oh, allowance has been made at the cross and by the Spirit. This is what it looks like to be a man after God's own heart when you've sinned. This is what it looks like to live as is fitting the people of God. So here's the question for each of us today. Here's the challenge. As you think about your own sin, as you think about your own experience of being convicted of sin, is there any one of those other lesser responses that you are prone to, that you're quick to reach for? Any one of those four? Is yours a sinful instinct to deny, in which case you add sin to sin by adding lying to whatever else you did? Or are you prone to hold your breath and wait it out? Or do you try to be clever with words to make it sound like you're taking responsibility even though you're not really? Or do you start looking for somebody else to blame? That one is very easy to fall into. And maybe this is a live question for you right now here this morning. Convicted of sin and facing the question, how am I going to handle it? Learn from David here. Be on the lookout. For those other lesser foolish responses and learn from Psalm 51 what it looks like to go to God when you're convicted of sin. That's the right response. And then finally, this second point, this second lesson, has to do with the fruit of forgiveness. The point here is this. Forgiveness is never meant to be the end of the story. It's always meant to bear fruit. It's always meant to lead to more. So here in this psalm, Psalm 51, it starts out as a plea for forgiveness. But then as you keep going, you realize that the very experience of forgiveness bears fruit. We saw that especially as the psalm went on in those later verses in the psalm. Where David says, Lord, as a forgiven man, I'll praise you. It'll bear that fruit. David says, as a forgiven man, I'll teach other people. On the basis of what I've learned. It's going to bear that fruit. David says Lord bless the whole people. Not just me. And we'll be a people who praise you back. So you see. David's personal experience of forgiveness. Isn't the end. It's a new beginning. It leads to more. It causes him. As it were to get up. Off his knees. After prayer. To look up again, to God in in praise and to look outward in testimony. And there are other psalms that bring this out. Psalm 32, another one of David's psalms, where he talks about the great blessedness and relief that comes from being forgiven. After he says all of that, then he says, therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. You see, he's forgiven, And then he turns around and turns that into testimony for the whole people because he recognizes that this isn't finally just for himself. But he can and ought to turn it into a blessing for others. Or Psalm 130, where it says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared, that you may be feared. There it's the same idea. Forgiveness leads to more. In this case, it leads to fearing God, which is the beginning of wisdom. And then the whole life of wisdom that follows from that heartfelt beginning. And by the way, isn't this what you want to experience in your human relationships whenever there's forgiveness? When you ask somebody to forgive you, For something you did to them. Or they asked you. Because they wronged you. And the answer is yes of course. Forgiveness is granted. That's not supposed to be an ending. That's supposed to be a new beginning. That's supposed to bear fruit now. In the experience of a restored relationship. You don't just go your separate ways at that point. Instead you now enjoy a fullness. That you had lost. Until the breach had been repaired. So it is in our relationship with God. Forgiven by God. It then becomes a new beginning of praise and testimony. And that's a lesson to learn here, brothers and sisters. The very knowledge that we've been forgiven by God should stir within us the desire to praise him and the desire to bless other people. With our testimony, we want to be on the lookout for the temptation to be a curved in people. That's the nature of sin. You can almost picture it, the way it causes us to to hunch over and to curve in on ourselves so that we're absorbed entirely with ourselves, caring only about ourselves, practically ignorant of the fact that anybody else in the world exists. Now, the very knowledge that we've been forgiven by God should, should lift our gaze up to God in praise. And then it should direct our gaze outward to others with a testimony that can bless them. And haven't you been blessed by testimonies like that? Not just David's here in the scriptures, but in the lives of brothers and sisters whom you've gotten to know. After these past few Sundays, we can certainly say this was one awful episode in David's life. Well, here's a chance for us to make the most of it. God put this story in the Bible for a reason, for many reasons. And one of those reasons is that we learn to go to God for pardon the way David did and then keep going in praise and in testimony. May it be so. And amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do bow before you with trembling and rejoicing. You are holy and merciful. You are the God of our forgiveness. Grant us, we pray, to take these lessons to heart today, to follow David's lead in handling our sin well, which was to handle it with honest and heartfelt repentance. And as a forgiven people, well, may that bear fruit in the praise we give you and in the way we bless others, testifying to the grace we've known. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.